Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Before we get started on today's episode, just would like you all to know that the Samplar is a new sponsor so or affiliate. So if you go to www.facebook.com forward slash nature's image farm. So everything that they have, all the animals they raise, so they, right now they're selling pigs, chickens, and Thanksgiving turkeys. If you're in the Ohio area or the probably surrounding states, you're, you're going to have to get on there and message them. But if you go to www.facebook.com forward slash nature's image farm, ask them about their force fed or force raised pigs, chickens, and turkeys. Um, it's all craft meat. So everything is, you know, I mean, it's beyond organic. Um, they're also shipping currently to anywhere, wherever you are. Comfrey, so they have Bocking 14 and 4. Um, if you guys don't know about Comfrey, definitely Google it, look it up. But uh, again, go to facebook.com, nature's forward slash nature's image farm, or just click on the image in the show notes. Thank you guys so much, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. <laughs> Gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Two Beers with Charles. He calls it Two Beers with Drew because every <laughs> once we try to do it once a month, but the last time we recorded was actually in March, which is crazy because we've both been so busy. Um, but anyways, this gentleman, uh, he is the owner and operator of, of TwoMinds.com. He is a book writing machine we were just joking about it because <laughs> you just released a short book after uh the new one um and uh yeah writer of up two minds i think i hit it there i'm just excited to talk to you uh so he's at at ch smith and the one is the i is actually a one on twitter so follow him on twitter but anyways we'll get into that later charles thanks for coming back on the show man yeah, thank you, Drew. It's been a while, but as you say, we've been uh, each of us have been very productive, and so it's going to be interesting to talk about what we've been um, doing, and because we've been uh, both of us have been busy bees, and so uh, before we started uh, recording, then uh, you were starting to tell me about uh, some of your efforts in in. Uh, Small scale farming, yeah, exactly, and what we, you know, permaculture and stuff, and um, and I went to a conference, a one day conference in in Sonoma County here in in California. Uh, since we last talked and, and learned a, a ton, even though I thought I was pretty well informed, I learned a ton from uh, Toby uh, Hemingway and 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 uh, Joel Salatin. And um, uh, and a farmer, a local farmer there, is, who's doing permaculture in Sonoma. So I'll say, I want to uh, hear what I you're. I actually doing. have your email. His name's Paul Kaiser. Yeah, I Paul think Kaiser he's from uh, Terra Firma Farms. So I want to give the small farmers because he's probably the one that actually realistically put on that event. So we'll give Paul a shout out too. So so absolutely. So yeah. So this year we've expanded. So last year when we first talked about this, like I was really helping my friend Joel. And just getting a feel for things, and I didn't have the education that I have now. And this year, it was, you know, I'm diving in. I'm going in 100%. I think that this is something I want to do because I paid, you know, I paid a good amount of money for my education. It wasn't actually that much. It's way less than a college education. But um, so I, I got all these tools and everything and something I said I wanted to talk about because – so I'm I'm on a small plot um, – it's just my backyard. Like there's there's plenty of pictures, and uh, and I'm gonna put some in the show notes. So I mean, my whole system. I bought into Curtis Stone's system. He's out of Kelowna, British Columbia. And it's it's uh, Curtis originates from what's called spin farming, and then Curtis kind of took it and did his own thing. So it's it's just based on a high rotation system. So I grow crops that are quick growing, so I can make cuts, and then I got to replant and get transplants going. So I've I've actually. I've been making Charles an extra 
anywhere between three hundred and four hundred dollars a week. So that more than pays for my rent. I mean, I've already paid off. I mean, if you include my education and a lot of stuff, I've, I've paid off most of my expenses for the year. But a lot of my first initial investment was just an in infrastructure, like my hoop house and tools and everything else like that. But as as having like a part time revenue generating business, I'm actually really happy about it. And I and it, and the the most exciting part about it is because I'm not that good at it yet. I could I could be doing a lot better. And so, but I think you know, I think the average family's like. Uh, the average household is $200 a month away from not filing for bankruptcy. So I think there's some stat like that. I don't know. That was back in the 2000s. So um, anyways, so what we were talking about to get focused is I was saying that there's a huge market for tools. Like I, I got this greens harvester. I paid 500 bucks for it. You basically just took a drill up. And then instead of me having to hand cut all these uh, – uh, beds that are for greens like you know mizuna or um, the lettuce i grow i actually still use a knife for uh arugula or mustard um you just use this greens harvester and you hook up a drill to it and i'll have a i'll actually have a video in the show notes so people can see what it is but it just it's this um it's a saw blade that goes it's this blade that goes back and forth and has these little mop looking things that just throw that goes off the motor is the drill and it just basically collects all your stuff and like and it's about it's it's literally about 20 times faster than hand cutting and so you save so much time so there's a huge market for saving time i mean um when i plant seeds i have a soil block on i got from johnny's and it's basically i think it only does like 20 20 20 little uh blocks soil blocks at a time but if anybody could make a tray like something that we could fill a whole tray um, for 10 by 20 tray, I mean, you could make pretty good money because people would pay, you know, 600 to probably up to a thousand bucks just so they could save time. And I think the biggest thing with small scale farming is, you know, with this system that I ha- that I'm using, you can actually make pretty good money. Um, and it's because it's a, a you know high rotation, but at the same time with tools like a the cedar I use, it's called a Jang cedar. I have to, it's actually only made in China, surprisingly. There's a few other cedars called the Earthway. But that cedar, like, as good as the Jang is, and, like, you still can't use that cedar for all of, you know, your vegetables that you want to, that you want to seed. I mean, so you, there's still so much room for improvement in the hand tool section. So if you're an engineer and you're listening to this and you want to engineer it, like, I'm not an engineer. I'm a very good user. And I understand technology, but I cannot create technology. Um, so I think that's a, it's a, there's a huge market in small scale farming because it's really cool. And there has to be so like farming has to change, as everybody knows. We've had multiple conversations about it, and there's a huge market for people to make money in the in the hand tool section and like making tools. That, you know, during a gold rush, you want to be the guy that's selling picks and shovels. So, and I'm not saying there's going to be a gold rush with farming, but everybody's getting like small scale farming's like cool now. Like it's it's cool to do. When I tell people what I'm doing, they think it's so cool, and I'm like, man, I just it's you know, it, it, I think it's cool, but you know what I mean. So it's so I don't I think there's a huge market. There's there's plenty of opportunity. I guess people just need to look in the right places, right? Yeah. No. Well, you're. Uh, what's impressive to me is that you've taken um, it to a semi-industrial level. In other words, like guys like me with our little home patch garden, you know, we generate uh, quite a bit of savings in terms of we don't have to go buy stuff and pay a premium for organic stuff because we're growing it ourselves. And um, I can totally relate to what you're talking about because I've been harvesting a couple kinds of lettuce and arugula. And um, as well as some kale and uh, some chard and some purslane. So I, anyways, you know, and, and it's like amazing. You can just get out in your garden, even if it's tiny, and, uh, you know, pick all the vegetables you need for a salad that night, you know. And you go, oh, well, you know, what's that worth? Well, you know, it's worth, if you go buy it, it's worth like 10, 12 bucks. Um, and so you do that, you know, a few times a week and, and it's, um, it makes, it makes a very good financial sense, but what you're doing is a whole nother level making 300 bucks a week. That's, um, you know, that's a, that's better than minimum wage and you're doing something that you can feel really good about. So let's talk about reindustrialization or, uh, uh, relocalizing 
manufacturing because the tools you're talking about, of course, are perfect for like a small-scale shop. You don't need like a billion-dollar factory to make a, a million units to make it work. You can make um, you know, 10 units for one guy and then change your, your pattern and make uh, you know, 50 for somebody else. You know? And the tools, the tools exist. Absolutely. Yeah, I think with, I mean, we talked about this a while back um, when we were talking about uh, onshoring, and but it's it's just really is. I mean, my friend just actually, he just got a job, and I think a majority of what he's doing is working with three D printers. Um, so you know, I, I I just think that there's a huge opportunity that for here in the U.S. I mean. Literally, the person that designed the green harvester was just a, a kid that grew up on an organic farm and hated cutting lettuce and stuff. <laughs> so he had all these prototypes. I mean, they show it in the video that I'll have attached here. It's like Farmer's Friend LLC. And, um, you know, Elliot Coleman uses it. Uh, Jean-Martin Fortier uses it. Uh, Curtis Stone, all the big names in small-scale farming are using this dude's tool. And he was just a guy that just was unhappy. Or just someone that's like, hey, I needed... To- I want to find find a way to not be miserable when I do this, and and you know there's there's plenty of opportunity for that. I you know I, I think you know all he did was he he designed some rough uh, prototypes, and then he had uh, an engineer that worked with him. So I you know and there's there's a lot of people even who listen to my podcast who are like, hey man, I have this idea for this tool, and I'm like, yeah man, get it working, and I'll try it out for you, and I'll tell you what I think, whether it be a new flame weeder. Or anything, because I don't got time to weed, man. Like I don't, I don't want to. That's not like an income-producing activity for my farm. So I mean, anything that you can do to help a farmer's time be more efficient. But even like, even think about different industries. Um, you know, if my brother's going back to school to be a mechanic, uh, and at least just going to trade school. But like, you know, if my brother could have a affordable three D printer. I mean, how think? I mean, just to think about like how how affordable he could make um, automotive repair. You know, if he has a good CAD machine or good CAD software, and then he could just have a affordable three D printer. If he could make you know fix people's like cars and produce his own parts, I mean, that would save people a ton of money. So I think um, I think that's that's like the direction everything is going, and people. Instead of like looking at it as wow, we can actually save a lot of money, um, and we could actually make life easier, people are looking at it like, well, what am I going to do without my job? I need this job, and it to me, it's something that I've been thinking about a ton. Charles is that like you know, I, I was listening to your your recent podcast you did, and even in your new book, you talk about mandatory or uh, minimum income, which is like a it's it's a topic that it's this you know the idea that. We'll have the, the the people that control the automation pay for everyone's minimum income. It's, it really is silly, but at the same time, if you think about that with jobs now, I mean, jobs are kind of a minimum income now, in the sense that people are so dependent on their jobs, they don't focus on developing new skills, they don't focus on developing themselves as people. Even they just want to—I I don't know, man—they just want to pay their bills, and they don't—they don't think that they don't even believe probably that they can do anything else. So I think it's—it's it's like a weird. I just think people need to change the way they think, and uh, I feel like I'm kind of droning on. And a lot of it is to do with this Wolf Ridge Brewing Company that is here local in Columbus, because, Charles, we did not say what beers we were drinking today. Right. I um, I have uh, some um, Sierra Nevada uh, pale ale on hand um, in, in bulk, my usual uh, sort of uh, – you know, default beer on it's on hand, but I went out and got a six of um, Indica IPA, which is uh, made by Lost Coast Brewery in Humboldt County, and um, I um, of course that's four twenty territory, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but nonetheless, it's a couple of ladies who started this uh, microbrewery there in, in Humboldt, and it, they make an excellent IPA, and I always stop when I'm. When we're going up camping or whatever, we always stop at at uh, Lost Coast. Uh, they have a nice little brew pub there and serves, you know, the usual uh, nice pub food. And uh, so that's what I'm drinking. And it sounds like uh, you're you're drinking something that's pretty dang powerful. Um, it's pretty good. Like I don't I don't think I'm too drunk or anything. I just sometimes I think I ramble when I get a good beer in me. But this is uh, Wolf's Ridge Brewing. It's called Howling Moon. It's a really 
Really nice restaurant if you're in uh, Columbus, Ohio. It's on 4th Street. This is 10% alcohol. So they only sell it in four packs. I think it's like a four pack for uh, 10 bucks. Um, which in reality in Ohio, that's kind of expensive. But as we talked about before in my experience in California, that's actually pretty standard. Um, so uh, it's, it's a great beer. But uh, anyways, as I was saying, Charles, I mean – when we talk about people with jobs and we talk about minimum income, I mean, I, do you, do you kind of see, like, I, I, I think people need, and, and this is something you talk about that is really resonating with me. And even I was thinking, um, I was talking to Fred, um, who's a, a reader and, and he's, he listens to the podcast too. And Fred, I, I was talking to Fred, like, you know, like when I first read your first book, like it really changed the way. Like I had these ideas in my head, but it really put these things crystal clear kind of together in the sense of like I kind of felt like I had these floating ideas. And then when I read your book, it was kind of kind of aligned with it. And it's it's and I think about the principles that you talk about in that book, like get a get a job, build a real or uh, build a real career to fire building economy. And like really like, you know, a real career is not going to be working for somebody else. It's going to be developing your own miniature enterprises and i think you know whether it be home uh home industry like whether you're 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 generating your own i i think it's basically the landscape for for artisans returning to the united states i think it's going to be everything but now when you take technology and marry that with like handmade craft goods um it's going to make everything easier and i think that's where there's a lot of opportunity for people to develop tools, whether it be small scale manufacturing or anything. Like if you can make, um, you know, you were just at a brewery. There's, there's, I mean, there's people that are developing miniature brewers that you don't need the big tanks and everything, and you can either use it for home or large scale industrial. So I think there's, um, there's just a lot of opportunity. And I think instead of looking at, uh, technology and saying, you know, how is this going to make, How's this going to eliminate my job? You should look at it like, how is this going to create a new career for myself? If that makes sense. Yeah, and and you know, um, Drew, let me ramble for a bit because, um, and I'm <laughs> just as I'm just as prone to that too. Um, with a good IPA, uh, I just was. Um, I've been speaking with a couple of gents in in Venezuela, which, as we know, is is suffering from hyperinflation, right? That their currency uh, was the, is the boulevard, and uh, back in the day, like a decade ago, it was nine boulevards to the dollar to the U.S. dollar. Right yeah. now, it's nine thousand, but the official rate is still nine. And uh, they were telling me that if you publish the black market rate uh, exchange rate on on a on a web uh, site or your Facebook page or whatever, then you're liable to be arrested because that's illegal. You can't you can't post the um, the black market price of their of their currency because it reflects poorly on the on the current uh, you know leadership. So they're in deep trouble. And what um, these the two guys that I've been speaking with are they're interested in. Um, They've written a paper about an, uh, an alternative uh, cryptocurrency that is labor-backed, which is which is the fundamental one of the fundamental ideas of of my book, uh, a radically beneficial world. Is we need another sort of money that's not controlled by central banks, that's decentralized, and that goes to the bottom of the pyramid to the people who are actually you know creating goods and services, not to the banks and financiers at the top of the pyramid like the the money system we have. So, but anyways, they're smart guys and they're they're engineers by training. And uh, they're struggling, you know. In other words, one guy said his his wage translated into dollars is $18 a month. That's uh disturbing. That's, that and then and then another guy, the other guy just told me that there's no food available at any price. I mean, the markets are are just stripped. And and um, what he said was very interesting, and it, it ties. I'll tie it into our conversation here. He said, "What's happening in Venezuela is not just inflation or poor govern government or a drought, you know, that's drained their main reservoir or whatever that people are blaming their their problems on." He said, "What we're really suffering from is deindustrialization." And and what I'm, I, I think what that means is that the, the the ability and will to make stuff instead of just take stuff has been lost. And um, you know we talk about makers and takers, and um, that's 
one of the problems here in the U.S. is the takers are like the financiers and the banks and, you know, the people who kind of game the financial system and they're skimming a bunch of money, but they're not generating anything. They don't, they don't generate new jobs. They don't generate any goods and services. They're just skimming all the profit off the rest of us. And, and that's not only morally bankrupt, but it also creates really perverse incentives. And so smart people start going, oh, I want to work for Goldman Sachs and make a half a million dollars. But that's um, you're really selling your soul to the devil, and it's also not good for the country. You know, you shouldn't you shouldn't have those kind of incentives. It should be that somebody like Drew Sample that goes out there and starts producing food makes five hundred thousand, or somebody that makes the tools. So the, the you know I, I want to talk about how the importance of having the ability to still make stuff and and the will to do that because. It's a funny thing, and um, I, I don't claim to be a you know globetrotter or whatever, but I can see in the in my travels in Europe and in Asia that um, you know some cultures they start losing the will to make stuff, and it's not that the tools don't exist; they've they've given up, you know, like they they they've gone to that centralized model that you kind of refer to. Well, like well, somebody's supposed to give me a job, yeah. like in a, so I'm a passive. I'm a passive lump on a log here and somebody, the government or some big corporation or somebody's supposed to come along and give me a job that I can kind of just like do the, the minimum at and then I, I'm good to go for 30 years. And, and that model is dead, okay? And, and what I think what part of what I hear you saying is that in the, in the upper Midwest, the, the average person worked for a large company, you know, a factory and a, or anything. Yeah, manufacturing company, yeah. And so the it was, uh, you know, that was kind of the standard like default setting. You you went to work for the local big company or factory, and of course th- that was true in in, um, in 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 Los Angeles back in the day when they had a huge aerospace industry there, or or you know, it's true um, in, in some other places, not just the Upper Midwest, but. The, the reality is you can't rely on one, the local factory or local corporation to hire the whole town. And if you do, then you've lost your resilience of your local economy because if that factory, you know, shuts down, then, then everybody, you know, uh, the, the whole economy implodes, you know. And so it's, it's not a good model for a lot of different uh, reasons uh, for the economy as a whole. But for the individuals, then they become sort of passive uh, – consumers, if you will, like, well, I should, I don't have to do anything except apply for a job or, you know, work the night shift or whatever. And even that, for the, the companies at the same time, like, I think you were just writing about uh, pension bubbles bursting or our pension is going to be paid for. Might have just been, I might, might have just been a yeah. zero hedge, but it's the same thing. Like if you're a company, like you can't afford to just say, hey, just work for 30 years and don't worry the rest of your life. Yeah. And so that's so true. And I think that, um, you know, there's another anecdote. I have a lot of readers in, in uh, armed forces and, or in retired armed forces and, you know, Navy, Army, Marines. And so um, one of these guys is, is, is in the Midwest um, and a retired uh, submarine captain, which is a really high level, you know, job in terms of responsibility. And, and he noted that, you know, the, the, English, the, the UK, the United Kingdom, that they used to produce their own submarines and, and, air, and aircraft and this and that. And they used to have a vibrant auto industry and, and all that went away, you know. And um, it wasn't that they lost the capital. It wasn't like they were too poor to invest in factories or, or technology or that there was no market for those things. They lost the will, if you, you know, it's one way of saying it, to, to make complicated stuff and to get out there and meet the market. And so what you're talking about when, when we talk about making tools for small farmers, we're talking about taking the initiative, you know, in other words, not waiting around for somebody to order a million parts from a, a major corporation. We're talking about seeing a, a market potential in the local economy and then, and, and using the internet to like, um, leverage that. In other words, like if I'm going to make, um, a cedar, then, you know, once I put that out on the internet and I get some good recommendations from people who've used it, well, then I've got a, I I can reach farmers throughout North America, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not stuck with just selling to my, my local community. Although, you know, that's a good place to start. So, I think in, in America, we have the advantage that we haven't yet lost the will to make stuff. A lot of people have. 
a lot of Americans have lost the will to make stuff, and that's a, that's a terrible negative. And that's the, the downside of guaranteed income or welfare for everyone, whatever you want to call it, is that it does, it does sap your initiative. You know, when you're getting a check from the government for doing nothing, well, that's morally bankrupt because everybody should do something for their community. You know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that's not profitable that, that could, that's still useful work. Yeah, absolutely. But even um, so, something you were just saying, you know, something Joel Salton talks about is, you know, why don't we want our farmers to be smart people? Like he, there's a, there's a, there's a book called that he wrote called "That Ain't Normal, Folks," and you can, uh, you can, you can get it on Audible. And but like, it's not just farmers. Like I think a lot about college educations, and I think about. You know, my generation, I think it really started with the Generation Xers. And then it really, like, I'm in this in between, like, I'm an old millennial. Um, I'm like one of the, my brother's like the oldest millennial. I think the millennials start in 1980. And, um, but what I'm, tr- the point of me bringing that up is, you know, I, I was from the, the, the generation of, you were pretty much a failure if you did, if you went to a trade school instead of college. And there was this really good Mike Rowe video that just came out about, uh, you know, don't follow your passion, follow opportunity and take your passion with you. And even like, you know, just skilled labor jobs, Charles, like my dad just got, uh, he just had these roofers redo his roof, right? And it was, and it was no surprise that there, it was an awful customer experience. They, they did his roof and they, they left all this trash and he threw it in the yard so they'd make sure they knew they left this trash. And then they put his gutters on wrong and it was just this big thing, right? And he paid like 12 grand to get his roof redone. And it's like, you know, and these are just like some dumb contractors that told him they'd show up a certain day and didn't show up until five days later. And he had to text them every day to know. I mean, there's, there's so much opportunity. It's just, and, and, and the thing is too is, all you have to do is in this country, like we are blessed to be in this country still, is be better than average. I mean, and, and, and average isn't that good. And, and, and that's the weird thing. That's why, like, you know, when it comes to farming, like I can just start and start producing food in my yard and people think it's cool and I can immediately go there. Like if you have, and we've talked about this before, like just like your, your friends took over a farm. And because they had operational management skills, they, they immediately made it profitable in like a year. And, and I think there's, there's just so much opportunity in skilled labor in this country that people, people get so blinded by, oh, you have to go to college. And then like, I even have friends that just keep going back and get more degrees. It's like, why? You're just preventing yourself from doing what you really want to do. Just do it. Like, just, just do it. Make some mistakes. Like, you have a job, start doing something part time. You can afford to mess it up. You can you can fail forward, make mistakes, and just make it happen. Yeah, totally, uh, totally correct, Drew. And one of my little slogans is, you know, acquire skills, not credentials. Yeah, that's what and, I got. That was the thing that I got really from your book because I never thought I'd want to be a farmer when I first read your book. I got that urban farming was cool, but then like I just started seeing all these skills that started like, oh, you know, I should learn to do that. That would be helpful. Like that's a skill to fall back on. Don't have a degree to fall back on. Have a skill to fall back on. Right. Because what's happening is, um, and I wrote about this too, is that employers are wising up to the fact that a college degree is, it does not say anything about the student's actual knowledge, right? I mean, if I go to college and I get a bunch of C minuses, um, what have I learned? Maybe I've learned only how to game the system. Like, in other words, get a, to earn a C minus so I get the credits, then I'm goofing off. I haven't learned anything. And in fact, studies have found, you know, that the, like, a third of all U.S. college students have learned absolutely nothing in four years of a, of a, of a so-called university education. And another third learned almost nothing. So, I mean, we're talking about two-thirds of people who actually learn nothing after four years and spending like a ton of money. So, you're right. Acquire skills because employers, they may say they want the credential, but what they really want is for you to have you know, real-world skills, you know. And so, if you're going to learn like business management, you should, you should learn it with an eye on how you can apply it to your own life, 
and your own enterprise, right? I mean, like yeah. we're talking about, yeah, management skills are useful. And you're, you're like a, you're a marketer, you know, you're kind of a natural born marketer, but you've learned a lot, you know, in, in, in your uh, experience. And so you have to learn to, to market your stuff. And if you, or if you don't know how to market or don't want to do it, then you, you, you have to find somebody who will do it for you and then you give them a cut. Of, of your business, which is perfectly fine. That's how we, that's how we work together, right? Yeah, uh, collaboration. I mean, I, right, right. And so these guys in Venezuela are, um, I'm uh, cutting them in. I mean, I'm paying them cash for, the, for translating my book into Spanish, uh, the, A Radically Beneficial World. And then they recruited a, a professional translator, um, editor, you know, who's a professor at a university there. And so we've cut him into the deal. And then I'm going to, they get a royalty on, on, on Spanish language sales. And so it, it's like, this is how, this is how we do business nowadays, right? Yeah. We, we mean, I may never meet these guys in person. It's a lot of money to get down to Venezuela and I'm not going to fly there and, and for fear I'm going to get arrested, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, and they would probably love to leave, but they can't. So we're going to do business anyway. And, um, and that's, I guess my point is that, business is global or even if you're if you're making tools in in north america it's uh i mean north america is it's its own mini world right i mean yeah it's it's uh canada and the u.s together are certainly uh, are about the same size in terms of the economy as the entire you know european union so yeah it's it's a funny thing that um i, I another kind of uh how shall i put it i I think it's kind of a truism that ties into this thing between skills and credentials is our economy is faltering because we focus on process, not outcomes. And so a degree or a credential is like that. It's, it's like a process. You know, it's like focusing on that. And so it's saying, well, if I get 120 units of credit, then I'm going to get a college degree and then that's going to open a bunch of doors for me. And it's all like, sorry, that's not what counts anymore. It's like the outcome, the the results. Did you learn anything that has economic value? And if you didn't, then your college degree is worthless. We're really sorry, but that's the reality. So what we really want to start doing is focusing on the outcome, you know, the return, the yield, like what's the yield or the outcome of my work? And if you just focus on process, then you're just becoming a bureaucrat, you yeah. know, like, well, I stamped the paper. What else do I have to do? And it's all like, well, actually, dude, you have to produce some goods and services. And if we're going to focus on process, we're going to go downhill. And that's to the degree we are going downhill. It's because we've, we've allowed too much of our economy to focus on, on, on just fulfilling some process without thinking about where, what's the output in goods and services. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, that's that's really interesting that you say that too. Because I, um, you know, at work we're going through uh, we're going through this merger, and uh, I don't want to say too much detail because right, I'm it's okay. Confidential. Yeah. Well, I'm okay talking about it as long as I don't say uh, company names or anything. But like the company I work for is just way too big to begin with, and you know something that I. I I was thinking about while while you were talking there, and I, and I hope I can try to tie this in. Um, but this is what it made me think about: was you know, when you develop a skill to to make something or to or to to improve something, or you just have that desire for something more outside of your job. You know, let's say let's say I I, I do farming, like because when I took this job, I took it to get capital, and we, we've talked about that a lot. Like you know you. You know, we, we talked about how it's important to, to live where it's, it's cheap to live and have a good job. And, and that was kind of what I did. And well, that is what I did. And then it was, um, you know, now I'm spending all my money in being a serial entrepreneur. Like I do a lot of stuff. And quite honestly, I don't, I don't make the farming enterprise is the first one where I'm really like, Oh man, I'm making money. Finally, I figured something out. And, uh, but like, you know, I've learned so much, like I've taken every, everything that I've learned into it, but like, so let's say, um, you know, this merger, I have something to fall back on now because I've started a business and I've, I've, I've learned these skills, but let's say even I quit this job, right? Let's say farming doesn't work out, but I do it for two years and I make money like that's going to look way better if there, because there's always going to be some large corporation that I could probably work for. 
Like they're not all going to go away, but a lot of them are going to go away, which is why everything's kind of consolidating. But if I go to an interview and it's like, well, what were you doing? Oh, I was running my own business for the last three years. It just just didn't work out. You know, I, I made a good run at it and this is what I learned from it. Like that looks way better than, oh, I, I got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and I have zero experience. Yeah, so true. So true. I mean, you're going to, they're going to really look at you and go, wow, this guy's actually done it. He's like, you know, uh, he's going to really help us make money. You know? Yeah, because I'm not a bureaucrat. Because when you, when you focus on the result, like what you're saying, and that's, that's like the thing that, like, uh, it's weird. So I, I started doing this podcast and it's called Failing Forward, the Profitable Urban Farming Podcast, uh, Accountability Podcast. Um, cause we're in that, in that course that I'm, that I, that I paid into, like you're supposed to have a partner. So me and my friend Scott, who, uh, when we were in San Diego, we were like, well, let's just make it a podcast. So we started, um, everyone thinks that we're just doing so well. And it's like, man, like I mess up way more than I get things right. And, and then it's like, uh, it's like a constant thing. Like I feel, I feel good because like I'm doing things. And I get respect and like, you know, like people say, oh man, keep killing it. And it's like people say that because I'm doing it and I'm, I'm making mistakes. I'm willing to, to learn and get those bumps and bruises. And it's, uh, it's weird when you focus on processes instead of results, you get really worried about making a mistake instead of, okay, what gets the best results? Getting the best results is, is learning to, to make mistakes, to get the best results, you're going to make mistakes because that's how you improve your processes in reality. It's not like, oh, we had these errors. You made so many errors. So, you know, uh, instead of celebrating it as like an opportunity to learn, people are, are look at it as a, like a form of punishment, if that makes sense. Um, I hope I'm not rambling too much, Charles. No, no, I think you, <laughs> I, no, no, I think you're, you're speaking to something that's um, really important and it, it ties our conversation. Um, everything from actually making products that people need, you know, reindustrialization or our small scale localized uh, industrialization and, uh, you know, enterprise and education. Because I just read this book. Um, one of my readers sent it to me. He's in, you know, business development and stuff like that. So it was a natural for him, but it was about um, how do you develop uh, talent? And, and the book was called The Talent Code. And, and basically the guy was uh, explaining that we, we, we tend to think that talent um, is uh, like uh, genetic, you know, that we that some people are born with it and some people aren't. And, and the rest of us that aren't born with it, oh, well, we're, we're out, you know. And he, was, uh, he went to great lengths. Of course, this entire book is about looking at how like great tennis players become great tennis players for example or great soccer players uh, he, uh, and it turns out that in in all cases there's you you have to be pushed to the point of failure that's how you learn fast and that's how you learn well and so whether you're learning a, a musical instrument or a sport or or business it's exactly the process you describe you have to push yourself to the point of failing and then you break down your mistakes into into like many many corrections you know like okay how do i fix what i uh, how do i fix this and so like in in small scale farming then of course it's um it's you're looking at um did my transplant uh, you know, did they die? Did, did I lose a large percentage of them? What went wrong there? And then you fix that problem, right? And um, But it's true in manufacturing too, right? You, you're, you're looking at every little element and then when you fail, then you, you fix that part of it. And so, or if you're, you know, learning a, a musical instrument, then you're going to struggle with like a, you know, flatted fifth, you know, um, F chord or something, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of guitar cause that's what I struggle with. <laughs> uh, and of course you're, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fingering that is really difficult at first and you're going to fail like completely for the first hundred times you try to hit that chord. Or, you know, if you're, if you're roofing, um, you, you, there's a lot of tricks in the trade to get those gutters correct. Right. And so the guys, sadly, that did your, your father's roof didn't, didn't know the tricks of the trade or they were lazy or uh, some other flaw, they didn't, they didn't learn from their mistakes. But anyways, the process of becoming talented and skilled is all about failing constantly 
but then stepping back and figuring out, fixing those things. And so if you always stay in your comfort zone, you never learn anything. And that's the problem with bureaucracy and process. It, it's, it, it sort of rewards people for staying in their comfort zone so they never fail and they never learn anything. It, it rewards it, people for not challenging themselves. Yeah. And it, and it's and it goes, you know, and that's the status quo. Which your most recent book is all about why the status quo is doomed to fail. Because that's exactly why. There's nothing there's no innovation. There's nothing attached. Like um you and uh um Gordon did a really good podcast on it. So if you guys haven't checked it out, I'll put a link for that in the show notes. But uh you know, it the status quo is is doomed. I mean it, people Excuse me. The, if if people haven't figured it out based on this election this year, or it's just sheer entertainment, that's, <laughs> that's all it is. I mean, I, I've been uh, Scott Adams, man. He actually has a great book too, and it's all about failing forward. Uh, he's he's talked about Trump's power of persuasion and his linguistic kill strokes, and he's absolutely right, man. Like, I don't, I'm not going to vote for Trump, but man, I, he's entertaining. And like, if you think back since JFK, the the president that was the most entertaining, the presidential candidate that was the most entertaining is one. And it's like, why is that who we're trusting to be in charge of 330 million people or three, whatever our population is now? It's it's ridiculous, and the the system needs to change. It needs to get it needs to get decentralized, which is what we talk a lot about. And and I think like you know. It, Becoming an artisan, becoming, you know, learning skills, which is something you write a lot about um, in, in that new book, is that's the way to do it. Like, you know, it, it's going to mess a lot of things up when people don't need to outsource their own food, uh, a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? You, you were talking in, um, about the, the Keynesian utopia is that, oh, so these rich people will have butlers and the, the whole – the whole system was based on everybody paying somebody else to basically outsource their own responsibilities, but you know it's just not realistic. And the and the more that you become resilient, as our good friend Marvin Matzenbacher is, um, you know, it, the more the the better you actually feel you have a purpose in life in reality. <laughs> Yeah, and you know that's important. It's really important, Drew. And um, you know, another uh, blogger, author, uh, Dmitri Orloff, uh, who who his site I think is called Club Orloff, and he he kind of reached uh, fame or infamy, depending on your point of view, by writing a book um, that suggested that Russia, you know, was actually uh, because it was poor and and lost its empire, you know, when the USSR imploded. That it was actually more resilient and 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 uh, able to withstand uh, dramatic change than the U.S. because we're just so soft. You know, we expect everything to work, and and we don't have to really take care of things ourselves, right? The government's supposed to come in and do it for us, yeah. right? And so, um, which is also why all of our factory jobs are going to Asia. Yeah, and I do want to talk about globalization and. Um, I think that I, I want to bring up this thing about Venezuela because it's it's really um, it's terrible uh, to live in a place where the government's supposed to do everything, and you know that's exactly what happened in Venezuela. Venezuela has a socialist style government, and they said, "Well, we're we're going to take over all those evil, you know, foreign corporations." And domestic corporations, and we're going to give everybody really heavily subsidized food and energy. And so, what happened though is that um, it, it it basically destroyed their economy. That now anybody that grows any food in Venezuela uh, takes it to Colombia or another country, adjacent country, to sell it there because at subsidized prices they're losing money. They can't sell it to the government and make enough to cover their costs. So it's insane. It's, it's better not to grow anything at all. And so you, you destroy your maker class when you turn everybody into a taker because there's no incentive to make anything or grow anything at all. And then um, in terms of energy, you know, their gasoline is, I don't know, 30 cents a gallon or, you know, less than a buck a gallon. And so it's squandered. It's wasted, you know, because we waste what's free. And, uh, you know, the planet is not infinite, you know, and so actually that's a really dumb policy. So in trying to be, quote, nice to everybody and give everybody free stuff, um, you destroy your economy and pretty soon there's no food in the stores at all. 
And so, and, and, uh, and so then that is really a drag. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you have to have a system that actually incentivizes people like Drew Sample to go out there and actually grow stuff that the rest of us can eat and, 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 and pay him for that because that's really what makes your country wealthy is uh, an abundance of goods and services are being produced. Not, not like you know, uh, the government saying we're going to supply everybody with, with, with free stuff or nearly free stuff. That doesn't work. And Venezuela is uh, sadly uh, proving that in, in, in real time. And, you know, what's interesting is, um, you know, something you were saying about Russia, like it was more resilient because it really hit like the bottom, right? Yeah. And I think about that, like a lot of people, so my parents, so once, like my one, my dad lives in Toledo, which the industry is basically, you know, I think about your analogy of the forest fire and they just need to let the forest fire burn so the new growth can take place. And the city of Toledo is doing everything to not let Jeep leave. Like Jeep was supposed to leave. And I was like, thank God they don't pay any taxes. They give $15 an hour jobs. Let that city burn. Like let the economy, that industrial economy, the old school industrial economy burn down and let something new come. And, uh, you know, my, my dad and stepmom, you know, they know they were – I was talking to them about how much money I was making with the business and they were like super proud and like, man, we should do some microgreens here. I'm like, there's really no restaurants to sell here. And they're like, Would you, do you think you could take your business and move it here? And I said, no. They're, the market's not ready. As soon as – because Jeep is still there, there's – people aren't ready to look for something new. Like there's not – there's a couple breweries there, and people don't even realize how cool they are, and they're great breweries. And uh, but then I, I look at Youngstown, and my brother, you know, he's up there, he's learning like his his trade stuff. He came down because I decided, Charles, that because uh, I need a walk-in cooler so I can cut harvest my vegetables and and not have to do it the same day like we did last year and have it go bad at the end of the day because it's been wilting in the sun and everything. So this way I don't have to wake up at two in the morning and harvest everything and go to the market and everything. I could, if I need to cut it on a Thursday because you know, my crop looks ready, I can, and I can just put it in my cooler. But because I rent here and I'm an urban farmer, it made sense to buy a trailer and convert this trailer into a, a walk-in cooler with this thing called a cool bot, which is, I don't know if you know what a CoolBot is, but I'll explain it. It's another great innovation that's from the U.S. I think it's actually from Kentucky. Basically, it tricks an air conditioner to run cooler, like just a window air conditioner. So you can, instead of paying thousands of dollars for a walk-in cooler, you actually save money on energy, and you can just build one yourself. Like You just insulate it and everything, and it it would be way easier had I had – because I'm not going to be here for a while – so my brother came down and he, and I had to have him weld some stuff because I don't know how to weld, but he does. He possesses that skill. And he brought this soap down from Youngstown. And because um, Youngstown's really starting to embrace like this artisan economy in the sense, like because there's all these handmade bread shops. They're not quite there yet with restaurants, but they now have their first brewery. And I'm like, man, like Youngstown is like this really happening place. It's not really happening yet. But it's getting there. Like I see this marketing that's developing because there's a bunch of cheap land, and people can like we. I've talked about it way too much already, but he just gave me this soap, and it's just handmade soap. I'm like, this is great. Like I would pay eight bucks for a bar of soap because I think it's like so cool because it was handmade, and that that luxury doesn't go away. Like that resilience is there because that economy's burned down, and the people that are there have survived. If that makes sense. And um, and I think that was kind of what you were saying about Russia and the U.S. Like those people aren't really soft. Like those people are like, well, look, like I got, there's no job here, so I have to do this. If that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think that you know it's interesting that you're speaking about uh, Toledo, Youngstown, and Columbus, and each of those is like a separate economy, you know, with uh, various uh, and the same state too. They're yeah, very different. Yeah, they're very different. You know, Columbus is a university town, so it has that, you know, kind of foundation of, of a lot of people work on campus and, and, um, there's a lot of corporate office home bases. Uh, there's, it's like, uh, it's a huge, actually, when I was in the airport, somebody said, yeah, Columbus is the biggest marketing area, like test market because it's the biggest college town. So, anyways. Yeah. And so, um, 
but you you've highlighted the differences between these three uh you know shall we say like local economies and um it's interesting because uh there's this book called the geography of genius and um it's it's another attempt to figure out like why some cities throughout history have like prospered and and um, gotten incredibly uh, this incredible concentration of capital and talent and and they've generated uh, amazing stuff right and so you can go back to like ancient Athens or, you know, Florence or, you know, San Jose, Silicon Valley in the current era or whatever. And um, so the guy's trying to figure out why that is. And of course you can say, oh, well, there's, uh, there's people with money there that are looking to invest. And um, there's uh, in Florence or, you know, in Athens, it was wealthy people who were willing to support um, artisans and artists and so on. But it's, it, there's some sort of critical mass of, of connectivity, if you will. Like there's a network kind of uh, effect that I think is, is critical. And when we look at the statistics, like where are the jobs created in the U.S., right? There was just a study that came out, and it turns out that a, a huge number, something like 60%, were generated in like 20 counties. And those, of course, tend to be you know, Manhattan, you know, NYC or, or uh, you know, um, Santa Clara in Silicon Valley and, and uh, you know, West L.A. And you go, well, why do those places generate the jobs? And it's because they're, um, they're getting that um, basically that network effect, that critical mass of people that you're talking about in terms of the artisan economy. Once there's enough people to generate, a, you know, a, a to have the capital and willingness to take the risk to open a few shops downtown, right? And the town was dead before, and then suddenly there's one lively street. If you get enough critical mass, then then that becomes a destination, right? One cafe doesn't quite cut it. One microbrewery might struggle, but if you get like six places, and then somebody opens like a you know a music venue or something like that, then you suddenly start getting a critical mass, and it's true of manufacturing as well. Um, and yeah. I can. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, the auto industry, right, struggling in the U.S. Well, except for Tesla. And a lot of people say, well, Tesla's, uh, the guy is a jerk or they don't like him, you know, um, the owner. And they, they also say, oh, well, you know, there could be some problem with the suspension and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, the guy is just marching on and, and he's, he foresees, like, you know, creating, manufacturing like a million electric cars by 2025. And um, and so it's created this network of suppliers around uh, Fremont, which is a part you know close to Silicon Valley, kind of on the you know eastern edge. And um, so there again, it, it's like once you get the network effect, then a bunch of other people who are interested in your industry or that that have skills or that have capital that they want to put to work, then they start they start glomming on to whatever else is happening from the the early adopters, and so. That's how you get um, new jobs. That's how you get new industry. That's how you grow um, a good feeling. Not just like you know you're making money, but you're creating a sense of a vibe. You know that, and and you spoke to that vibe that people are excited about what you're doing, and they're they're giving you um, props and you know high fives, and because they're like feeling the excitement of uh, that you're generating, and and you know that's part of what makes being alive fun, right? It's not just Absolutely. like I got a paycheck. Yeah. Or I'm living on welfare, so everything's fine. It's all like, and you can call it welfare or you can call it minimum guaranteed income. You know, it sounds fancier. But the bottom line is you're getting paid to do nothing. I mean, is that really what, how you want to spend your life? That's such a drag. And yeah. people get depressed and then they go, they do drugs. Yeah, they do that's, drugs. That's or they not go shoot shit up. I mean, like it's, it's, you know, when people don't have a sense of purpose, they do really crazy things, man, because they're, yeah. they're miserable. It's, it's so unnatural. So, Absolutely. yeah. So, anyways, you're so you're part of the critical mass there in in Columbus, and um, that's what that's what's so exciting to talk to you is you're actually doing it. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's uh, <laughs> that's like been the that's like the secret networking tool, right? Is you got to do shit. Like I remember, uh, I was just on a podcast. I'm gonna give him a shout out. He actually is a reader of yours as well, and uh, he's like he started following. Uh, the podcast. He's got this. Uh, he's got his own blog called Small Scale. I think it was Small Scale Life. Is his his podcast? Tom Tom DeMore. So give him a shout out, Charles. Uh, Good. Yeah. If uh, Tom Charles would probably do your podcast, you just got to ask him. Anyways, um, definitely. <laughs> 
Tom said something, uh, um, you know, and that, that was something when I went on Tom's podcast, we were talking about everything that I've done. And I was saying, you know, because it's about time to wrap it up because I think you, you're going to usually whenever we talk this late, you got to eat dinner soon. So um, well, I got to go make dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyways, uh, you know, um, I, our conversations, I think, really changed. I just want to express some gratitude, Charles, because our friendship, I've has really encouraged me because I think after the second time I had a podcast with you, um, I was kind of I was kind of like at a at a tipping point with the podcast because I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know what direction I was going to take. I just recently split off with my brother and uh, and and I knew I could I knew I wanted to keep doing it, but I didn't know what the direction to take it in. And you just always encouraged me to do shit. And then uh, when I started doing shit, it was like people naturally, and I'm just saying shit in general because it's like, just do stuff, do something. Like uh, my friend Chris Throw, he's got this uh, microgreens farm. It's this urban farm in Vancouver. And something he said when I was at uh, Permaculture Voices 3 was, if I don't know what to do, I just do something. And then I'll figure it out from there. Like you don't always know what the right step to take and what direction is, but just take a step. And if it's the wrong one, so what? You'll find the right path. You'll get back on your path. And uh, so, you know, I always appreciate you encouraging me to do stuff. And um, and your books and your blog posts have really helped me. And they've really, you know, it's cool to see. I was talking to my dad this week and my, my youngest brother, actually, because I'm such an anti-college person. And it made, I think I was starting to make my stepmom uncomfortable because – Every time I pretty much tell my brother, like, don't go to college unless you really think you can get something out of it. And thankfully, he's just as resilient as me. And he, uh, he, he was the only community college kid that got a paid internship to, uh, the University of Washington for marine biology. So he's, he just actually left Monday. So I want to give him a shout out because he, uh, he applied for all these internships the year before because I really put it in his head and my parents had that, like, you just go to college and get your degree, it's worthless. Like you have to have like experience with that degree. So he applied at all these internships and you didn't get any of them. And then they, they asked, well, why didn't I get any of these? And they're like, Oh, well you should really go to the writing center. So he went to his community college writing center and worked with them extensively and applied for all these other internships and got the one he wanted because he just basically developed a skill to write applications for these internships and now he's there. Like he's a he's a super talented kid, so I want to give him props. And then uh talking to my dad, this is something else that was interesting because you know, he worked in a factory for thirty years and now like he's got this good job and they're him and my stepmom are like living their lives again. They're so much happier because now they have so much more income. Um and you know, something is is like, you know, because he felt like he finally was released from prison with a pension and now he can <laughs> go do what he really wants to do. And uh, so, Charles, I just want to say thank you for uh, your friendship and uh, for doing these podcasts because they've they've been a great deal of influence on me. And uh, it's cool that we can get together and drink some beers and just talk about whatever. You know, I never want you to talk about like we'll talk about your books and other stuff, but we usually have other kinds of conversations. And it's it's a great time for me. And uh, I just appreciate your friendship, man. So I want to put that out there for the listeners because, uh, you know, you got to have some gratitude. Well, thank you very much, Drew. And I do want to say uh, congratulations to your younger brother. I mean, that's uh, that's fantastic. And that's exactly how, you, you know, you should do it. You know, if you want something, then you acquire the skills necessary, which in in our world today, a lot of it is communication skills, you know, and being able to communicate your sincerity you know yeah. and, and we we read so much bs and and pr and propaganda that if you if you can uh express yourself sincerely then then you've got a leg up on on everybody else and i you know i just in kind of closing you know i decided you know uh that i wanted a, a college degree um mostly because it was a second thing to what I was already doing. I was already working for a contractor and I was, um, it was like I was learning two jobs at once. You know, one was in the field 
learning, you know, painting and drywall and taping and carpentry and all kinds of other stuff, um, which I loved learning. But I was, I'd, I'd cobble together enough, um, I'd cram all my classes into one morning or a couple mornings or a couple afternoons. And so I, I did earn a, a degree in philosophy, which I also really loved. But I didn't expect it to make me a living. It was a luxury at the time that I was willing to sacrifice for. And I think that if you have that attitude for a college degree, then go for it. You know, if you understand it as, as, a, as a luxury that may never pay any, any financial dividends, then go for it. You know, but you have to be doing a whole other job and, that's what and learning a whole is, other though. trade. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so most people, like we alluded to earlier, I mean, uh, they just go to college because they think it's going to get them a job. But no, you should be going to college to get an education. So, and, and most of the time you can't get an education because, I mean, people, there's professors, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to go, I don't want to, I just totally, I felt like uh, threw, a, threw a, a, a rock in what you were trying to say. But professors instead <laughs> cater to their students because they don't, they don't want to give out bad grades or give you a real education because they're so worried about what their review is going to be. And it's just this vicious bureaucratic cycle that we've already talked about. But um, yeah, so sorry about that, Charles. No, 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 absolutely. I, I'm just saying that my approach always is to track, always have like something you're learning for yourself that may or may not pay off, but you're, you're fascinated with it or you're interested, go for it. But in the meantime, you've also got to keep acquiring, you know, useful, economically valuable skills. And it means you have to kind of work more than the average person, but you know, you're going to get a lot more for your work. And I, I totally like what your friend said about if you're not sure what to do, just go out there and start doing something. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it's going to pay dividends eventually. Yeah, you'll take those skills and you'll take that passion and the, the real opportunity, just like what Mike Rose said. So anyways, ladies and gentlemen, um, I've taken enough for Charles this time because we bullshit a little bit for 10 minutes before we started recording. Go to up2minds.com, uh, subscribe, get uh, – he's got a mobile version. If you have Outlook at your office, we all we already know. Most of us do. We all have this outlook. We, if you work in cube land like me, you like to pretend to work when you're not really doing anything because everybody knows that you can't work nonstop. So what I like to do is I like to read. I'll read Zero Hedge, but I mainly just read Charles's blog. I read Charles's blog. I read uh, a few other blogs that I like, and there's a nice little RSS tool in Outlook. Subscribe there. Then you could forward his blog via email to other people. If you want to do it on your phone, though, there's also another way called Feedly. That's another way. Or just go to his site. Go to his site, um, of2minds.com. Follow him on Twitter. It is at CHS1. Then uh, it's SM1TH. Uh, so CHSM1TH. Uh, you can also join our Facebook group. There's some great conversations. Slowly building organically because... Quite honestly, Charles and I, neither of us really have time to, to post a lot in there. But if, no. you, but if you want to be a moderator, Facebook keeps recommending me to, to, to delegate the moderating skills to other people besides Charles and I. And, and I was trying to look to see who is organically doing it. And there's a few people that I have in mind. So I'm, if you listen to this, I may be reaching out to you. And, um, but it's still fun. Fred. 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 Fred Fred's, Fred's a little too crazy. But I'll see. Fred's, Fred's a provocateur, which is why I like him. Because so am I. He's the provocative. That's the new form of conservatism, right? It's provocative conservatism. And that is, that's, why, that's why Trump is so like he's really resonating with people. That's a wholly different conversation. Fred, you're one. And there's another gentleman too that I have in mind. Um, anyways, uh, go to Charles's books. You will see I have links for Charles's books always on my website. But also there will be in the show notes. Charles, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Just that uh, my new book is only 85 pages long. It's called Why Our Status Quo Failed and is Beyond Reform. It's only three ninety five on on the Kindle. It's, uh, it's a, just a quick you know, couple-hour read and uh, it's cheap, cheap, cheap. Yeah, and if you <laughs> want to buy it and then find out how you can listen to it, I'm only going to share this with you privately. So let me know. And I will teach you how to listen to the books with my technical skills. 
Also, two last things I'm going to promote, Charles, and then we can get this over with. If you are into trees and permaculture and all that fun stuff, my friend Grant Schultz has this great site. I make nothing from this, um, but I'm good friends with Grant, and what he does at First Land I think is really cool. So go to newfarmsupply.com. Anything he has, grafting, tree grafting tools, just really cool shit. Like if you want to start a little mini food forest in your in your yard or anything, Grant has everything you need. You'll get 20% off. And if you're in the U.S., typically you get free shipping too with code word SAMPLE. Also in the show notes, you'll see a link for the course that I was talking about that I've bought into. You can save $100 at ProfitableUrbanFarming.com. There's going to be a link in the show notes. You can learn the small-scale farming tools that I am learning and uh, join me in the, the private chat and become friends with Scott and I, which has been a really popular podcast that I started. And that is it, Charles. All right, Drew. Well, it's been a pleasure, and, and let's do it again in July. Absolutely, sir. Let's try to do it in one month exactly. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for listening. Oh, 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 oh,